Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Welcome to The Indispensables. Today I have Yu Chun Li. He's the CEO of Alego, which is a software company uh, uh, dedicated to sales enablement. Uh, this fellow, uh, he spent part of his career uh, founding and developing a company called Unico, which he sold to IBM in 2010. Uh, and uh, now he's, he's been running Alego for uh, uh, Mr. Li. How long? 10 years. This 10, years. Uh, 10 years. And, uh, Yu Chen Li, welcome to the Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, uh, so, so um, uh, you are uh, sounds like a one part entrepreneur, one part operator, um, and uh, innovator, and um, so you're running. And 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 Alego is a, a 300 person organization, uh, and you founded it. You started from scratch. That's right. Uh, so uh, you 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 know you got to be careful. This is going to be habit forming. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a serial entrepreneur, love creating new markets, uh, developing com- compelling product sets and solution to the market. This is, this is what I do. This is, this is my passion. Fantastic. Uh, well, that's a good kickoff. Uh, so tell us, uh, uh, tell us your story uh, in a nutshell. Uh, how, how does somebody get to be you, Chun Li? Sure. Um, so I've always loved software. I was a nerd in high school and, and uh, started my first company uh, in uh, junior uh, at my high school. This is well before there was an industry and, you know, went on study computer science and electric engineering and uh, spent the first few years working for a company called Digital Equipment Corporation up in uh, Massachusetts. And then I founded my first company, uh, Unica, when I was uh, 26 years old. And, wow. And, and, and just to be clear, you studied engineering at MIT? Correct. Yep. Uh, so, uh, uh, that's, um, for the uninitiated, uh, that's, uh, that's where the brainiacs go. So, uh, and, and you started your first company when you were 26. Uh, yeah, the company in high school, I started when I was 18 and then, uh, 26 is when I started Unica. So the company in high school, I mean, uh, uh, do we know about that company? Have we heard of that company? Were you able to well, sell that company? It's very early days. Uh, it was a company called Apollo Software. We uh, developed a application for professional draftsmen to use personal computer to create their professional drawings. This is well before the, the Mac Draw, Mac Paint, and those programs. So basically, it's one of the first applications in our whole area. Wow. And then you, so you happen to go to MIT. So you were in the Boston area, which is uh, uh, a, um, a hub of technology, innovation and entrepreneurship, right? So you were in the right place. Um, and, and what was it like? Wait, tell us about your first job. I mean, a guy who's a serial entrepreneur who goes on to be a founder and uh, uh, take uh, 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 mar- uh, companies to market and then, um, you know, the likes of which you could sell to IBM. Um, you must have been a lot to handle in your first job. <laughs> well, I was uh, quite naive when I first started. And uh, like anybody in this position, I, I made plenty of mistakes. 
And one of the things that one of my mantra is actually, uh, you know, you walk around every day, you want to learn from your mistakes. So if you're not making a mistake every day, you're really uh, not growing and learning and improving. So uh, through one way or another, over time, I start to make less and less mistake. I still make mistakes, but in different areas. I try not to repeat the same. And uh, really just started to get a hang of it. I, I, you know, there's a proverbial 10,000 hours in anything we do. I think I'm putting my 10,000 hours in the software business uh, over the last 30 years uh, being a CEO. Oh, I, I guess so. And so what, what, what was it about your first job? Um, what did you do in your first job that led you to leave and start a business? Yeah, so, you know, ever since high school, I, I, I always want to be an entrepreneur, start my own company. Um, so my first real job was with digital equipment uh, right, after, right after college, after I got a master's degree from uh, MIT and, and, and an undergraduate. And um, even at digital, I was looking out and trying to learn what would a company of this size feel like, look like, how does it run? So even when I was there, I was really thinking about starting a business. And the area that was in, Bruce, was in the area of machine learning, AI, basically everything you'll hear about it today. It's basically my major back then, and uh, the group we were in was called Machine Learning and AI Consulting Organization, where wow. we help uh, pretty large organizations to uh, leverage machine learning, neural nets, and these technology to improve their businesses. And so that, that was, was early that. days, right? So when did you graduate from MIT? 1989. So you and I are the same age, um, and uh, and then you got a master's degree at MIT in what? In electrical engineering and computer science. So you went in, were you an engineer at Digital Equipment? I was. And and it's such a different role being an engineer than it is being a, a founder. So uh, tell us about that transition. Well, so uh, it's, you know, what, what I've experienced in the software industry is, is that, that, that if you have deep technical expertise, it does help you make key decisions about the business, about the technology that you're betting the business on, et cetera. So, and business, business is, is always one of those things that that is an, a necessary element of starting businesses. I mean, I, I have an MBA from Babson as well. And, you know, part of this is just to make sure you got both of those correct. You know, it's not just technical, it's not just business, but uh, the founding team as a whole need to make sure all the areas are covered, all the bases are covered. And so when did you get your MBA from Babson? It was during actually. It was during uh, when I was when I was running Unica. I I, uh, I took on a a challenge for myself to uh, get to know all aspects of the business as well. So it took me a while. It took me five years to get my master's uh, MBA at Babson, but uh, it, it was doing their evening program. So you must have had a lot of free time. <laughs> right, and the best thing that came out of Babson, Bruce, was I met my wife there. Ah, that is the best thing. Excellent. And is she involved in your enterprises or does she, she's like a doctor or something? <laughs> no, no, no. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that would be a problem. Uh, okay. All right. So, uh, so how, so what, what was the first thing you did when you were going to make the transition from digital equipment to founding Unica? Because I think a lot of people are, are curious, right? Especially right now. There's a lot of innovation going on. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the economy. Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurial desire, uh, but there's um, and and I think times of uncertainty, uh, you know, are also times of uh, entrepreneurship typically. 
Um, but but what what were your first moves? Did you recruit a team first, or did you come up with an, uh, a product first, or did you find financing first, or did you identify a customer first? Those are usually the hooks, right, that lead someone to start a business. Well, you know, um, there are a lot of different ways, in my opinion, to start a business. But the way I went about it was to first figure out who are the people that will complement my skills to tackle a myriad of opportunity. It could be any sorts of business venture that we get in. So I, I founded Unica with two other co-founders, Ruby Kennedy and David Chung. Uh, these are some of the best, brightest people I've met at MIT. And so three of us started Unica. The first thing we try to figure out is who is our customer. And um, I don't know if you remember, Bruce, but 1992, when we founded Unica, it was a, a year of a recession. Yep. So the company was founded in a recession. Uh, the first thing we do is try to figure out who are our customers so that we can bootstrap the business, uh, leveraging sort of the, the, the relationship we have with the customers while building our product over time. That was our initial strategy. And luckily, uh, some of our early customers are pretty big organizations like Alcoa um, and JP Morgan that help us really establish ourselves in leveraging machine learning as a technology. So we use that as a catalyst to help us build our product. And two years later, we roll out a software product and start to grow the business ever since. So, uh, uh, so you founded the business with a couple of pals from MIT. So step one, go to MIT. <laughs> step one, find somebody who complements your skills. <laughs> well, it helps a lot if you go to MIT. But, but step one, uh, uh, fi fi find a team uh, of people who complement your skills and uh, and it's two years later, you roll out a product. So what were you doing to bring in uh, money and pay the bills for the first two years? You said you were bootstrapping. How were you? What 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 did the bootstrap look like? So uh, we do contract work, consulting work around uh, some of these customers we've engaged in. Right. And while doing so, we also uh, basically build our product over time. We also got some government funding through a, a program, little known program called SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Grants. So we've got a few of those grants to help us, but basically bootstrap ourselves all the way through. And then we got profitable by uh, 1998. Wow. Um, now, were you, in an were you in an incubator? No, we completely independent. We, we didn't have any funding, wow. got, to, got to profitability. We did bring in some financing, but one of the things I'm most proud of is was that we, we were able to grow Unica without using anybody's money, including the investors' money. Their money ended up just sitting in the bank. When we went public in 2005, we actually had a lot of cash on the balance sheet. So, so that was a very proud uh, journey that we went through. Wow. Okay. So, so uh, you founded it in in uh, uh, '92, and you go public 13 years later. Correct. Um, so net present value in '92, we don't know. But it was it was significant. Um, it, was, and, it was a good return on effort, I would say. <laughs> and what and 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 uh, uh, and what uh, what was the product? Um, so we again started out in the machine learning area, and um, at yeah, one point in time, the uninitiated. Can you yeah. explain? So nowadays they're talking about artificial intelligence, and uh, 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 but these were early days of machine learning. That's right, early days, but it's basically the same technology using data that you can train a machine to recognize handwriting, to recognize uh, uh, derivative and equity movement in a market. This is the use case that JP Morgan 
recognize how a aluminum smelting uh, plant function and how do we optimize the electricity usage, et cetera. That's Alcoa, right? That's Alcoa, exactly. So yeah. it's the same technology. Now, in uh, around 1995 is, was when we realized being such a small company, we need to focus our energy in one domain, one sort of use case, if you will. In 95 is when we're focusing on marketing. So over since 1995 to 2005, 2010, Unica was focused on marketing automation. So basically provide technology to help the chief marketing officers to solve their job every day, which includes how do I find out which customer will respond to us? Well, guess what? Machine learning can help you predict the response rate of different type of people and help you target them better, right? And we also build out other product like campaign management and whatnot for, uh, again, the marketing organization, and then eventually build out this whole new space called enterprise marketing management. And that's how we sort of became the leader in that whole space. Wow. And then, um, and, and, and then you sold your business in 2010 to IBM. That's right. So IBM became a customer of ours actually in 2008. And they love our technology so much that they bought us in 2010. That's fantastic. Okay, so so step uh, 706 is have IBM buy you. That's a good step, always. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fantastic. And then, so how long were you on the bench before you founded a new company? Or was part of the acquisition deal, did you have to stick around for a while? No, it will, since we're public, it's an all-cash acquisition. Um, but I decided to actually stay at IBM because I've never been in a company that was over $100 billion in revenue at the time. And, um, you know, we were given an edict to go and acquire other businesses to assemble all the technologies that a CMO would need. And so I spent three years uh, really helping IBM consolidate the technology needed for large organizations and had a blast. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful organization and we're able to do so much uh, so fast that as an independent, small public traded company, I would never be able to do given the resources that we had. So that was a really great run. And then three years later is when I started Alego. Okay, and tell us about that. So, so, and just uh, you know, if, uh, if for 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 people who are following along, I mean, just uh, you know, imagine the story arc here, right? Because what you're telling about is uh, a twenty-plus year process where you start from scratch, right? You start to uh, you you as you say bootstrap. You release a product. You start to get to profitability. Uh, then you go public, then you sell to IBM, then you hang around at IBM for a while. Did you take a break, Yuchun? <laughs> no, so, so Bruce, I, I, I mean, some people had it, maybe it's like winning a lottery. You may be able to do the story arc within three, five years, but I never had that fortune. You know, for me, it's always about work, hard work and um, focus on what I'm good at, what I like to do. And you know, I, I must honestly say through that period, I don't feel like I'm like working my ass off. I feel like I am um, just learning every day. And I, I wake up every day energized about the business we're building together with a, a great team. You know, just we had a wonderful team at, at Unica. And we have even a stronger team today at uh, Lego. So those are the um, things that excites me. Yeah. So were you, uh, I mean, did, were you on the bench for a little while or as soon as yeah. you left, you were done at IBM, you were like, okay, what's next? Yeah. In fact, after IBM, so I, I ended my tenure at IBM uh, at the end of 2012. I started Lego at the same time, I invested in another company called Clarabridge, where I'm the executive chairman of the business. And then I also took over that company as CEO for a few years. 
uh, doing CEO transition. So I actually ran both companies for about two year period. Wow. Um, and what, so, uh, yeah, how did you balance that? That's now I got to tell you, um, uh, your, your story is, uh, is, is extraordinary. Uh, but I've, but I've talked with plenty of people who, you know, have this story arc, but, 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 but now you got me, this might be a first. So you were a CEO of you're founding a company and running a company, another company at the same time. Yeah, it was challenging. I must say that was the one period where I, I do feel like I was working Bruce, because, uh, I remember, uh, having to fly. So the other company, Clearbridge, uh, was in Washington, DC, right. And Alego was in Boston. So. Monday and Tuesday, I will run Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I will run a Lego Wednesday night, I will fly to DC and I'll run uh, Clarebridge Thursday, Friday. Now, this is well before the pandemic taught us that you can actually run a business remotely. At that point, out, right? yeah, we, we have to, we had to interpret. Now, luckily, I was able to find a great CEO, Mark Bischoff, two years after and, and hang the rein over to him while stepping back to executive chair. And Clarebridge was sold to uh, Qualtrics last year, actually, for uh, uh, at the time of exit, $1.4 billion. So that was. Wow. Yeah. And what, what was Clarebridge? Clarebridge was in the business of providing a B2C organization an ability to listen to their customer and understand their sentiment. I mean, if you, I'm sure you, you've experienced all these surveys that's out there after you've taken a flight, rent a car, and stay in a hotel. Clarebridge is behind a lot of those data. To help organization understand what what what's wrong with their operation and be able to fix it right away. Got it. So they're gathering data that can then be mapped and maybe used to predict the future or make decisions and improve the service level, the customer experience uh, of their of their clients, basically. So at core, I mean, I, I I I'm starting to see a theme here. All of this would all of this count as business intelligence, basically. So the whole space, think of it as sort of the customer facing aspect of enterprises, right? So you think of sales, marketing and service. If you think about the business that I've deeply gotten involved with, it's all around sales, marketing or service. And to me, these are the three key elements to provide a great customer experience. And as you know, the purpose of a business is to have a customer. So we are all about making sure the customer have a great experience, build great relationship with businesses and helping them to be successful. And I think we're in a pretty pivotal point in history where the customers are engaging with, with companies in very, very different way than even five, 10 years ago. And there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about that. And I want to explore that a little bit more. Um, uh, in, in, in the meanwhile, so t can you explain? Uh, okay, so you so here you go again, right? I'm guessing uh, somehow, um, Maybe you were involved with private equity folks, or somehow you got your hands on on Clarebridge, right? But but Alego is your next child, right? Your next baby. And uh, tell us, w was that startup experience very different because you were much more experienced? You were much better resourced. Very much so, Bruce. Uh, so uh, I, I I the way I would describe it is that I design the startup of a Lego almost to the ideal that I can envision in my head, which is um, number one, uh, we pick a market that is in great need of transformation. And I'm able to handpick that because of my experience, I've seen how 
companies adopt technology and know, know the sequencing of it, number one. Number two, um, we pick a team consists of some of the best and the brightest I've ever met in my career, uh, from technology to business partners and, you know, the best sellers I know, all of them assemble together to start a business. And I also know the pitfalls of, of making sure the company started, started with, the, with the right set of culture and make sure that those culture are well known ahead of time to everybody. You know, we have this thing, for example, at Lego, we call it the operating principle. And we outline how we expect every professional to behave in the company. And that type of sort of clarity allows us to build an organization with very strong culture, uh, highly collaborative and able to do great things and, and people are motivated to, to be successful in the business. So those are just things I've learned. Um, also financially, I'm less dependent on, on startup funding. I, I'm able to write a check myself. I'm able to you know, uh, uh, spend all of my energy on the business instead of managing investors, managing a board, and certainly not managing a publicly traded company uh, investor base. So all that helps. Yeah, gee whiz. So there's a lot here to unpack. Can you explain what was the market you identified that was in need of transformation? Yeah, so the, the customer that buy our solution are organizations that have big and expensive sales forces. So you think about salespeople, right? They, they need training. They need to know what they're talking about. Uh, they need to be able to answer objections. They need to know what messaging, what content to share with the customer. And more importantly, these days, they need to be able to uh, virtually sell to a customer because a lot of customers don't want to meet with sellers. You know, I don't know how many times you respond to your email when somebody's soliciting anything. You're probably shutting them out, right? So there's a major change in, in the works in the market. And we're trying to help organizations to be able to, you know, better message, better tell their story, identify the best storyteller within the organization, able to sort of bring those message up front and make sure everybody know how to, you know, hit their quota, how to onboard people, train them quickly, launch product correctly, et cetera. That whole piece is a space called sales enablement. And it consists of a lot of these, these different technologies that's, that's useful for sellers. Um, okay. So I, I understand that's powerful. Um, and uh, uh, so let me ask you this. Um, so, so, um, now I'm really interested in hearing more about your culture. So tell, is it top secret or are you able to talk about the culture? Are you able to talk about the operating principle? Um, it's not top secret. We, um, we, uh, I, I would characterize that as just a set of lessons I've learned, if you will, you know? And, uh, so for example, our, our most foundational lesson is that, uh, we, we care a lot about the truth in our business, meaning that, you know, we could be the group, a group with the smartest minds and the most brilliant minds. If, if we're not viewing reality correctly, we may be solving the wrong problem, right? So, and we know a lot of organizations out there fail because they, they have the wrong assumption about the, about the world. So we as a team are committed to basically be truthful to each other, be able to share honest opinion about how we're doing as a business, even if truth hurts. Right. You got to have that. Now, is this like Ray Dalio's radical candor? Is that where you're headed? What very you're similar. Exactly. It's very similar. That's that's one. And then so so with that as a foundation, you know, we, we have a set of principle how to operate uh, efficiently in terms of problem solving uh, and also how to uh, uh, embrace mistakes if we do make mistakes, which we will. Right. So, OK, that's that, that powerful. So so uh, uh, let's walk through that. So I love the idea of 
embracing the truth. So you believe in facts and logic? <laughs> I think we all should. Well, but but you know, there's uh, these are uh, uh, facts and logic are becoming controversial. There are many people who seek to argue that two plus two equals five. Well, everybody can have their own opinion, but uh, you know what you love to be true may or may not be true, and it's important for a business collectively that we operate on truth. And yeah, so I, I mean, I'm I I I am uh, 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 puzzled. That we and I have to say this, but uh, it's refreshing to hear that uh, that you feel that um, a, a starting point would be that we have shared facts and agree on basic rules of logic, because man, I think without that, you're you're in a pickle. Right. And uh, so so I'm I'm I, uh, um, I'm I'm I think that's a real good starting point. And um, um, but I'd love to hear about you said something about how to. Uh, about problem solving. I'd love to hear your, your, what's your sort of philosophy about problem solving? Well, you know, Bruce, in my experience, many professionals go to work um, and spend a lot of energy trying to look good, especially in front of their bosses or CEOs and whatnot. And so one of our problem solving principles is don't worry about how you look, because guess what? We can see right through it. So, you know, come to a room, Say something when you need to say something. Don't say something just to look good. You know that's just one example. So we have a set of these these things. And the other thing uh, that that we found problematic is a lot of times decisions get made in a meeting, and then people leave the meeting, and they all remember different outcome of the decision. So how do we document these decisions so that everybody's aligned afterwards? So there are a small list of things that's about how do we efficiently operate as a team. And how do we detect misalignment? How do we communicate that properly? There's a whole bundle of, uh, of, of sort of expected behavior that we make, we make it very clear to every one of the, the new hires uh, into a Lego that, that this is what we expect. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I, I like that sort of thing. Uh, like I call that, you know, so you have clear priorities and you need really clear ground rules. Um, exactly. So that uh, people and, and, and sometimes people feel imprisoned by guidelines and parameters. I think most people feel empowered by guidelines and parameters. Right. You know, it's like an operating manual uh, yeah. instructions. Hey, this is how this is how we operate. Our ground rules are, you know, I assume you're not telling people, you know, don't worry how you look. So it's OK to show up in your pajamas. Maybe you do. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, we use the word judgment a lot. You got to use good judgment, right? And and um, we we do think that that having these explicit is great because otherwise somebody who joined a company anew they have to figure it out. They have to sort of read between the lines. Just too much work, right? So that's why we put this all up front. I meet with every single new hire to make sure they understand these operating principles so that everybody's aligned. And um, and and so don't uh, don't say something just to preen. Right. Uh, uh, don't don't uh, don't say something just to compete. Don't say something just to have something to say. Exactly. Say something for a good business reason. Right. And yeah. and build that and build that skill sets to listen. For example, as you know, listening is one of the hardest skill uh, to do well. And every single CEO I know that I respect are those that are great listeners. You know, and, yeah, and, 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 and to your point, you say, so, OK, if we're going to have a meeting and we're going to have people conducting themselves in a certain way so that we're listening to each other, we're saying things for good business reasons, we're trying to move, we're trying to advance a question, right, or uh, advance a problem toward a solution or uh, whatever it is, right, move toward a plan. 
Uh, and then uh, we're going to document to, I call this practicing extreme alignment, yep. right? So that we're, we're going to make sure uh, when you say everyone's on the same page, like there's actually a page, exactly. we're all going to have that page. That's what, so, right? Yeah. So I mean, we know where we ended up. Exactly, Bruce. You, you, it sounds so basic, but you'll be shocked how many companies don't do this. No, I think it's critical. And I mean, uh, often I, you know, I, I've been consulting with organizations of all shapes and sizes and doing management training for decades. And my, uh, what I always tell people is, hey, if you master the fundamentals, you're all set. And I'm going to bet my bottom dollar, there's plenty of room still to fine tune the fundamentals. Yeah. I mean, the fundamentals are where most people don't concentrate enough. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah. okay. Now you also said something about, uh, we're going to make mistakes, but we want to, you said earlier, you want to learn from your mistakes. You don't want to make the same mistakes twice. Uh, I sometimes call it the Warren Bennis rule, which is, you know, great leaders make the same amount of mistakes as not great leaders. It's just, they recognize them more quickly and act to turn, you know, to change course more quickly. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and Bruce, I think the key ingredient in there as a company is to make sure that you truly tolerate mistakes and um, you remove the need to be defensive about it. Because to me, defending yourselves after a mistake is a wasted energy. It's, it's, um, it's one where, where it's not just emotionally and time and, and sometimes because one try to cover one's mistake is when you start to you know, uh, make a, a problem even worse, right? So we, 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 we grow, grew up as, as professionals and as individuals all through our lives, when the schools and the parents, everybody's telling us mistake is bad, right? So we associate mistake equals something negative. I would, I'm here to tell you as a professional, I think the sooner one can embrace their own mistake professionally, the better they will be, the further they will go. I've seen many, many cases where the people who embrace their own mistake the most end up to be the fastest learner, and they're the one that go the furthest, fastest in their career. Yeah, because the worst thing you can do is keep trying to convince yourself that some, that a mistake was actually the right thing to do in the first place, right? Uh, if, yeah. if it, you know, if 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 you didn't dot your eye, you don't go to bat for the fact that no one should dot their eyes, yeah. right? Or, so, or you cover, or you cover it up, right? That's even worse. Right? Oh well, yeah. Then you have uh, uh, both um, a problem that might uh, fester and grow, and you also have an integrity issue. Exactly. So. Embrace your mistake is one of our key mantra. Is is one of the, the things that we value quite a bit at Lego. And so uh, you told me you have three hundred people. Um, and but but what is the story arc of this business? I mean, is is this now uh, uh, a business you're growing for an exit like uh, the first one, or um, or or is this one? Uh, no, this is this is this is my final. Uh, uh, spouse <laughs> well you know i've never uh, i can honestly i've never started a company thinking about exits at all um and i think as time goes on the need to exit become less and less important with that said i am you know extremely aware of the needs of anybody who put in time and energy into a company like a lego they need to cash out at some point and the good news is that we have a lot of people uh that that are uh uh, buyers of a Lego stock. So I'm not thinking about liquidity event is needed for myself personally, obviously, but 
uh, I, I'm able to deliver on what people need to do uh, through time. So this is really about making sure that we build the market. We build a great company. Um, I, I love the arc of building a company from nothing to something great and give all the employees a great experience in that journey. Um, you know, give our customer highly satisfied, terrific product that they love. Yeah, you know, those are the things that drives me. And, that, that's and it's, it, it's so interesting because um, you said earlier you were able to design this one, right? So you were able, you were able to. I mean, when when you're starting a business by bootstraps, you know, there's a lot of idiosyncrasies and band aids, right? Um, uh, but 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 it sounds like uh, so it must be very gratifying to be able to design it exactly how you want. Yeah. And uh, for example, we don't have a board at Alego, right? It's me and my co-founder and our executive team basically run this business. And wow. there's a lot of value to that because we are 100% focused on the growth of the business, on winning the market and making sure our employees are growing and, and developing as professionals as well. All those important elements is why we go to work every day. And so you have an executive leadership team that I, I, I think based on what you said about the culture, that you see it as uh, an executive leadership team that's kind of collaboratively making decisions. And is yeah. that right? Exactly. Exactly. How many and, people and, are on your team, on your executive team? Um, it's about 10 people. And, uh, you know, we're pretty honest with each other. You should see some of the if you're in, in the room, you'll hear us you know, being pretty blunt and give each other straight feedback. And that's the kind of dynamic I think helps shape. Uh, the business and make sure that everybody's making the right decision. And now at this point in our conversation, I think I understand um, uh, why this is a learning and development company and also a sales enablement company, because now I think I understand maybe that the product, the products and services are about uh, helping organizations onboard up to speed train, uh, uh, support uh, uh, and develop their sales force. Yep. Is that right? Exactly. So think of what a sales team need to do. You need to hire new people, make sure they ramp quickly. Uh, when you launch product, you want to make sure everybody's messaging is on point, right? You got to be able to articulate the value and differentiate yourself from competition. You got to be able to communicate and share and collaborate with the buyer in how they buy from you. You got to give them content, the right content, the right message, the, the, the right uh, interactions to make sure you all work together. And you need managers know how to coach and, and make sure that every sellers are at the at, at their best and the highest potential. So that whole thing together is a paradigm, frankly, that, that, that applied to all functions, but we focus on sales because that's where the best and the highest return on investment could be. If you can, you know, improve a sales team's performance. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And, and I think to your point, you know, um, uh, I've seen a lot of sales organizations where, um, you know, some people have these big enterprise accounts and, uh, some people are just trying to break in and then, uh, or you have a new product launch, all of these, uh, you're hiring new people, all of these inflection points, uh, are ones, even if you've got an experienced seller with an enterprise customer and, and they're just sort of, you know, an account manager, um, well, you know, you, you don't want that person to just rest on their book of business. You want to find a way to coach that person to do more, better, faster. Uh, or, or if you've got salespeople who are great at selling, but they don't, they don't uh, do their documentation or there's a problem with getting the orders into order management. Or, uh, so is it the case that, you can, um, you, you, that your system, what does your system look like? 
Yeah, so, you know, the biggest problem that, that we see, there, there are a few, but, but I'll point out a couple of big ones. So typically in a, in a sales organization, when, when you're launching a product or when they're onboarding, you, you are, they're being trained, right? You put them through a boot camp and usually someplace warm, you know, you have some team building going on. And then you put a pipe down their throat, you pump like a thousand PowerPoint through them and somehow magically expect them to remember anything, right? So of course the same team, two weeks later, two months, they forget everything. So they actually learn while they're working and you know, experimenting with the live customers themselves and then eventually figure it out. And those that don't figure out, they end up exiting the company. Yep. We think that's a terrible way of ramping and learning. We, we totally agree. Yeah, that. and that is, by the way, that is the default presumption yeah. for most most new product launches, most new sales team stand-ups, right? We, we call that train but not retain, basically, all yep. the information you need. And instead, we, we took that paradigm and turned it upside down to say, all right, when is a seller most interested in learning? Is when they're in front of a problem they need to solve right away. I mean, think yep. about... You know, if, if your washing machine is broken, what do you do? You go on YouTube, you try to learn how to fix right. it or something, right? Just so, in time learning. Just in time learning. That's exactly where we start with the seller. And it will work backward from that to say, all right, if you train them, how do I reinforce this? How do I help them practice? How do I help the sales manager managers to coach this individual, you know, professionally and, and asynchronously? So there's all these capabilities there. Now, let's switch our eyes to marketing. I don't know if you know this, but marketing organizations produce tons of content for the sales team and less than 30% are even touched or used. That's the mm-hmm. standard statistic. So you got these poor marketers that's slaving away, generating tons of content, and yet nobody is even using the content. That's the sad part, right? Not only that, but salespeople blame the marketing people because that they don't have enough of a pipeline or whatever it is. Exactly. They don't have the right content. They don't have the right messaging. Their things, not, the stuff they produce is not resonating. So part of what we do is aligning sales and marketing to make sure there's collaboration, um, that the frontline conversation is funneled to the marketers and, and that they can use that as feedback loop. And that's what's missing critically as well for organizations. And we and have- So what do the tools actually look like? So we have the ability, for example, to record calls uh, in real time so that uh, you know after a, a video conference or, or telephone calls, the calls can be reviewed asynchronously by anybody. We have AI tools that help transcribe those calls, detect key patterns, and point those patterns out to people. Um, the seller basically will have their app on their phone, right? And they can walk around all day long and learn bite-sized pieces of knowledge that will help them to be more successful, served up by AI, so wow. that they're focused on their weaknesses. Um, they have content at their fingertips. If they're talking to a client, they can pull up a content right away. If they need to learn something, it's like serving a, a corporate YouTube. They can find the answers right away. So that's the type of solution that we're providing. So it's basically as they run across skill and knowledge gaps, they're able to go and fill them one skill and knowledge gap at a time yep. uh, using a just-in-time learning system. Yep, and AI and everything at their fingertips. Wow, I'm, great idea. And so, uh, and and you've been developing this now for ten years. Ten years. We just had our ten years anniversary, and uh, we're we're at the most exciting juncture of our business. Even though we're in the middle of sort of a tech slowdown, um, you know, we 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 think we're, you know, this is my sixth recession, by the way, as a CEO, Bruce, and uh, you know, these slowdown actually have a cleansing effect in the market, and I think we're going to do really well uh, as a company here. Yeah. So what uh, lessons do you have for people who are who for whom it's their first recession? (laughs) 
Um, first of all, uh, statistics says that a recession is usually nine months to 18 months, right? So uh, no matter how bleak it looks, I, I will tell the CEO, it's not going to be long-lasting, okay? Uh, uh, everyone is different, but they tend to be reasonably short in comparison to the bull market. Um, I would say if you try to deal with the recession while you're in a recession, it's a little too late. You kind of want to build a company well before the recession to make sure it has strong culture, make sure um, from a financial standpoint that you don't build a business like drunken sailors, spending money like crazy. That's never a good MO, in my opinion, if you want to last. You know, you may get lucky, but you know, the odds is frankly against you uh, if you don't have a discipline in building a good business. So those are the two things I would say fundamentally. Sort of the two fundamentals are when things are good, stockpile cash, don't don't burn cash um, and build an infrastructure that's resilient enough to make it through a downturn. Exactly. It's, it's very easy to build a business. I give away $10 to make $1, but it's much harder to build one that actually adds value and the customer is showing that you're adding value by giving you more money than you need to, to acquire them. Right. And just as I always tell people who are, oh, I can't get a job. I can't get a job. Well, you can always get a job if you can sell. Right. Exactly. And, and, and likewise, if you can uh, pour gasoline on, on the sparks of a sales team, uh, then, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, recession proof then. Yeah. We drink our own dog food too, Bruce, by the way. All of our sellers use our own product and they're very effective. And so of the 300 people, how many of your 300 people are developers? How many are, you know, finance? How many are salespeople? How many are uh, account managers? How, how does your organization break out? Yeah, I, I don't have the exact breakdown, but I would say about half of our business is customer facing and the other half is GNA and development. Um, of those that are, that are blended or customer facing and development, about half of them are technical folks. So we do quite a bit of investment in, in what we do in terms of the expertise. And, and it's not just software, right? We're we providing a methodology, a process to think about modern enablement differently than what they've been thinking about in terms of traditional learning, traditional way of managing sales content and so forth. There's a, there's a whole methodology around that. So together, you know, the team is able, able to deliver uh, you know, some of the award-winning um, uh, solutions that, that we see out there. And and if I understand correctly, you are well aware and uh, maybe part of your methodology, part of what you're trying to, to show sales organizations is, you know, training is not an afterthought. It's not, uh, it's not a, a cost center. Um, it's a way to avoid unnecessary problems, solve problems quickly, plan resources better, have people go in the right direction the first time instead of having to do rework that training and learning and supporting is a way to uh, supercharge your sales force. It's not something to cut, it's something to double down on. Yeah, and the most importantly, it has to be in the flow of their work versus pulling them out of their selling day-to-day -to, -day to do training. Training should be integrated into what they do every single day. And if, if we do it right, it shouldn't feel terrible. It shouldn't feel like you're forcing these sellers to do something. The seller actually pull the information because they need it. Yeah, right. And that makes total sense, right? That is to your point. I mean, if you if you if your uh, laundry machine isn't working, you go on YouTube and figure out, you know, how do I tighten this screw? If you have a flat tire, you're sitting on the side of the road saying, how do I fix a flat exactly. tire? Right. Exactly. That's how people work. And and in our personal life, we're all there already. And somehow you go to the corporate world, it feels like you, you just went back 20 years, you know? So part of this is just modernizing 
what works that we all know works and just make sure that we can translate that to people's business. Brilliant. Yu Chen Li, CEO of Alego, serial entrepreneur, uh, a certified brainiac with multiple degrees from the, from the uh, uh, late 80s and early 90s um, at MIT. And, um, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing uh, this may not be your last, uh, last business that you create. Uh, do you think you could find a formula to start an even better business or is Alego perfect? Yeah, so right now I'm running a Lego. I'm also executive chairman of DSP Concepts, another business um, uh, that's in the embedded audio space. Chances are you have a car or a product in your house that's uh, run on top of DSP Concepts. So I'm always sort of into a few businesses, but uh, you know, a Lego is a wonderful business. I, uh, I I'm so thrilled where we are, and uh, lots of great things to come. I'm sure you'll hear more about us. And if and if you were uh, getting on an elevator with someone who's thinking, oh, my God, how do I get to be like this guy? Uh, do you have one solid piece of career advice you would give somebody? Oh, gee, we need another hour for that. But I would say really get down to hard work and love what you do at the end of the day. Uh, uh, work hard and love what you do. Yu Chen Li, CEO of Lego. Thank you for being a guest. I mean, it was fun. Uh, thank you. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at go to underscore podcast. That's at go to underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.